It's written that the scriptures testified beforehand the suffering of Christ and the glory that should follow. In First Peter chapter 1, verse 11. This testimony was not confined to written description, but embraced men whose lives contained incidents which became typical of Jesus. We read of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, the following words. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and land the la- and I and the lad will go yonder and worship, and come again to you. How so, if he was to die? Paul tells us that this was faith, accounting that God would raise him from the dead, from whence also he raised him in a figure. So, in Isaac, we have a willing victim who bore the burden of the wood which was to consume him. After these typical enactments, the well-beloved son of Abraham was raised from a typical sacrificial death. And then we read these words. And Abraham called the name of that place Yahweh Yireh. And it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. What should be seen? Why, the antitype of Isaac, the well-beloved son of God who laid down his life as a willing offering. The same significance attaches to inanimate things. The rock in the wilderness was Christ. So was the manna, the Ark of the Covenant, and many more things which time would fail us to tell. And now we recall Christ's rebuke to his disciples. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. We believe that among the things written in Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, to which he then referred, would be included matters of the nature we have mentioned. Now, this divine method of revelation is beautifully developed in the life of Joseph, a life which in its broad outline and sometimes even in the small details proclaims the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. We have read how he starts life as the favourite son of his father, becomes the victim of envy and suffers typical death in a pit which proved to be the stepping stone to rulership of Egypt. Let us briefly glance then at these things in order. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. We learn that his dreams concerning future rulership angered his brethren. And his brethren said to him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet more for his dreams and for his words. Later in verse 11 we are told, And his brethren envied him. But his father observed the saying, Envy, that evil characteristic of which Solomon says, Wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? The answer is to be found in the sequel, Envy but waited occasion, and Joseph was cast into a pit. Thus the gentle and harmless Joseph began his career of suffering, common to all the children of God. Brother Roberts, commenting on the necessity of these things, 
of these experiences says this. Joseph was innocent and excellent, but Joseph was young and untried. And God had a great purpose with him that required that he should be matured and perfected in character, as men can only be perfected in the school of adversity. That principle, the truth has taught us to understand, but an onlooker, witnessing the anguish of soul experienced by such a gentle lad, could almost be excused if he questioned whatever good could come of it. And even Joseph, instructed as he was, would have had his faith sorely tried. For it's easy enough to recognise the principle of suffering in theory, but another matter to submit to it in practice. No doubt, during many a night, Joseph cried himself to sleep, after vainly trying to puzzle out how it could all end. But it was not for him to know. That would have frustrated God's purpose with him. And doubtless, it's because we know his end that the magnitude of his faith in God is not so evident to us as it might be. The lesson is there, however, for instruction and consolation when we too suffer our trials. The lesson that the journey of Joseph to Egypt under such heartbreaking conditions was a journey to ultimate glory and exaltation. And so when the trial had its effect on him and on his character, he was fit to assume the great honour that was waiting for him. Yes, the glory will inevitably follow the suffering which God brings upon us all. In chapter 41, we are shown Joseph entering into his typical glory. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, See, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand and put it upon Joseph's hand and arrayed him in vestures, fine linen and fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. These were typical of the garments of righteousness and tried faith. The name he was now given by Pharaoh is worthy of our attention as well. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zavnath Pania. The meaning has variously been given as the saviour of the world and the bread of life. And such he was by reason of his office in supreme control of the corn supply of Egypt. Had he withheld corn, all would have died. Yes, even his father and brethren now in Canaan. And Jacob said, Behold, I have heard that there is corn in Egypt. Get you down thither and buy for us from thence, that we may live and not die. Yes, he was the dispenser of bread in famine, truly the bread of life and the saviour of the world. And did you notice too that on both occasions when his brethren bought corn, their money was returned? Don't you think that this is a beautiful indication that the anti-typical Joseph would dispense the bread of life without money, without price? It certainly seems probable. Then we think the narrative of his dealings with his erring brethren is one of the most beautiful stories on record and shows to perfection this one of whom nothing is recorded to his detriment. Then Joseph couldn't refrain himself before all them that stood by him, and he cried, Cause every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him, while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. Now therefore be not grieved, nor angry with yourselves, 
that you sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. Moreover, he kissed all his brethren and wept upon them, and after that his brethren talked with him. Here is the command, love your enemies, practically illustrated. In a figure showed forth, he later prayed for his murderers, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And why did Joseph manifest no resentment? Why did he harbour no feelings of retaliation? Well, only one thing is capable of making a man act like this, a recognition that behind these untoward happenings lay the wise hand of God, who was working out his dual purpose of trying Joseph and furthering his own purpose. God did send me before you to preserve life. Had it not happened, Israel would have ceased from being a nation and no redeemer could have come. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. And even at the end of his days he said this, But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. Yes, this was the purpose of his suffering, unlikely as it seemed at the time, to save much people alive, including himself. Thus, in the life of Joseph, we have a lesson, an object lesson, which will sustain and fortify us in the trials which the same God brings upon us for the same purpose. Suffering in preparation for the glory, the two are inseparable. The first is indispensable to the enjoyment of the second. So we find it again in the one we've met to remember, whose life fulfilled the events foreshadowed by Joseph. He also was a son, beloved of his father, as it's written, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. His rebukes and claims to rulership provoked the hatred and envy of his Jewish brethren. Envy was again triumphant. And at the darkest hour of his trial, a Gentile ruler could see through their evil designs. Pilate knew that the chief priests had delivered him for envy. This time the pit was real, death was real, but as it later transpired, it had no more lasting power than the pit from which Joseph was taken. Of Jesus, the Spirit had declared in prospect, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me, and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. His betrayal, like Joseph's, was achieved by silver. Thirty pieces, this time instead of twenty. A goodly price, we read. God ironically calls it, uh, this, a goodly price, in Zechariah 11.13. As for grief and wrongful imprisonment, Isaiah had long before foretold it, and so it came to pass. We read, He is a man of sorrows a man acquainted with grief. He was taken from prison and from judgment. This all came to pass, although he had done no violence, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. He was holy, 
harmless, undefiled. Yet, like Joseph, for conscience' sake, he suffered wrongfully. When he was reviled, he blessed, and just once again suffered for the unjust. Yet it was necessary to fit necessary to fit him for the great position he is to occupy. Like Joseph too, his sufferings were not born stoically. He gave way to tears, yes, strong crying and tears. Weeping is the lot of the saints. Tears are no sign of effeminacy. Paul, unmoved by the prospect of a cruel death at Rome, a strong man if ever there were one, frequently gave way to many tears, to use his own words in Acts chapter 20, verse 19. Prison, too, has been the common lot of God's children. Jeremiah was cast into prison for faithfulness to God, and God allowed it. John rebuked Herod and was put in prison, and later beheaded, and God allowed it, with no explanation. Paul successfully imprisoned the disciples, men and women, and later suffered the same fate himself. Jesus warned that the state would cast them into prison during a ten-year period of tribulation, and God allowed that. Not to see evil men triumph, but to perfect his many sons. And this form of trial has been witnessed even in our own day, when our brethren saw the inside of prison walls and sought solace in bitter tears. Well, the glory of Christ, although incipiently realised, has not come yet. But Daniel sees him. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom. Then will he be revealed to Israel as the bread of life. Then shall they look on him they have pierced and mourn. Again, it will be seen that all this evil was overruled. Wicked hands crucified and slew him. Yes, but it was the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. And again, Jesus will be able to say it was for a purpose, unlikely as it seemed at the time, to save much people alive, including himself. And Joseph saved Jacob's and his brethren's lives, so Jesus will save his father Abraham's life and the lives of his children by giving them the bread of life. And so will be seen the glory, the sequel to the suffering, epitomised in Psalm chapter 22, opening with these words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He is the governor among the nations. This is the termination of his suffering. Then those who once declared, like Joseph's brethren, we will not have this man to rule, reign over us, will, like them, humbly submit. For it is written, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. Well, in these two cases, there are appropriate words of James. We have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. But what we have not seen is the end of our own lives, and that is where faith has scope to emulate Joseph and Jesus. Our destinies in miniature are the same, for we are among the many sons which God is bringing unto glory, and it is by the same means as operated in the life of the captain of our salvation, namely suffering, and it will have the same end, glory and kingship.
kingship for all? Yes, to share the same Davidic throne. Sit with me in my throne. For David speaks of the provision thus made when his future throne will become a plurality in Jerusalem. For there are set thrones of judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Meanwhile, we are called upon to suffer, and for many causes, for causes which we may be tempted to think are not of God, maybe because of their trivial nature, maybe because, in our opinion, they cannot even be remotely connected with God's purpose with us. Brothers and sisters, that is a mistake. For all things, large or small, good or evil, are working together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. It may be ill health, maybe unemployment, maybe household difficulties, a trying wife or husband, in or out of the truth. It may be a lack of a partner, loneliness. It may be any of the trials to which the flesh is heir. It doesn't matter. For when our life becomes history, it will read no less wonderfully than Joseph's. Even though the suffering which is now leading to the glory may seem very commonplace. Meanwhile, let us emulate Joseph and Jesus, for says Peter, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. First to Peter 5, chapter, verse 6. Then the weeping which has ended, endured, will be forgotten in the joys of the morning. Our sufferings will have passed for all time. The glory, our glory, will become an eternal possession.